You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. On this episode, we're talking about books about history. First, we'll hear from Amy Stewart, who writes historical mysteries set in New Jersey in the 1910s and fascinating books about the history of things like botanicals and bugs. After that, we'll chat with Jennifer Egan, Pulitzer Prize winner and writer of A Visit from the Goon Squad and her latest historical novel, Manhattan Beach. And finally, we'll hear from Jeopardy! champion Ken Jennings, who's also a prolific author and host of a podcast that touches on all kinds of interesting historical topics. My name's Amy Stewart, and I'm a writer. I've written a bunch of nonfiction books, and now I'm writing a bunch of novels that are based on a true story. So even listeners who are familiar with those novels, which are about Constant Cop, who's a female deputy in the early 1900s, um, and her sisters may not know that the books are based on real people. Yes. And can you tell us how you first learned about Constance and her sisters? Yeah, I was working on my previous book, which is called The Drunken Botanist, and it's a book about all the plants we turn into alcohol. And there was a gin smuggler, a real person, a gin smuggler named Henry Kaufman, who I was writing about for The Drunken Botanist. And I just wanted to find out more about him or what else he did before I decided whether to put that story in The Drunken Botanist. And so in doing that, I ran across a lot of stories about a lot of people named Henry Kaufman, of course, (laughs) who got up to all kinds of things 100 years ago. And uh, I never did figure out if it was the same guy. But I found this article about a guy named Henry Kaufman who ran his automobile into a horse and buggy being driven by the cop sisters. And he demolished their buggy, and they got into a big fight over who was going to pay for it. And that escalated until the cop sisters were being harassed and threatened, and it was this whole thing. And the case just was so interesting that I kept digging, and I realized that all three sisters' lives changed because of this random occurrence, and um, they went on to do amazing things as a result, all three of them, for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, this is not just one novel, but this is a lot of novels. There's so much here. Yeah, I was astonished when I finished the first book and went and looked at your notes how much of it is based in, like, actual events. Like, so many of the things in the book actually yes. happened. Right. It's not just, like, sort of the the setting and the era, right. but the real events. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, research process? Yes. Well, um, it started at libraries, of course. <laughs> I mean, well, it started online, I guess. So first I found all the newspaper clippings I could about them that had been digitized, uh, which is some but not all. I um, went into Ancestry.com and built out their family tree. And in doing that, not only was I able to put them in the context of their family and understand who they were a little bit more, but also I was able to connect with other people who were working on the same family tree. So in that way, I found some of their relatives. Then uh, I hired a genealogist who did some of the work of going into courthouses and requesting records in New Jersey that I didn't know how to do. Eventually, of course, I went to New Jersey, and that's when I was really deep into the library research, because I'm down in the basement of small libraries going through microfilm that, of course, has not been digitized, so you're literally looking at every page of every day's newspaper for years at its stretch. Um, to try to find the rest of the story. And mm-hmm. I visited the, all the places where the things happened, and I have connected with other family members of more peripheral characters in the books, and the jail where the sheriff worked and where Constance will go into work. I've walked through that jail. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I've like really gone deep into their, into their world as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't want to say too much about the plots, <laughs> but the first book makes it really clear uh, how real the consequences were for an out-of-wedlock pregnancy for young women at the time, Mm -hmm. and sort of the generally limited options that women had. And then later books deal with these morality charges, which were basically when families or husbands were sort of like, oh, she's doing something I don't like, and you can send this woman to jail for that. Um, And then there's um, a theme of postpartum depression, and so there's Mm -hmm. lots of sort of women's issues. What surprised you most about Um, in your research and writing about women's lives in the early 20th century? Well, you know, it is surprising, like, how much has changed and also how little has changed. So let me give you one example of that. Um, 
one of the frustrating things about writing books based on a true story is sometimes you find out new things after the book is oh, finished, no. <laughs> right? Which makes me crazy. And so the first big one of those just happened, which is that um, during the events uh, that Girl Waits with Gun covers, uh, what, what happens is that Constance, you know, her family's being threatened because she got into an argument over payment for the damages to the buggy. Her family's being threatened, so she goes to the prosecutor's office, like kind of like what today would be the DA's office, and the guy doesn't believe her and doesn't want to help. So, big surprise. But the new piece of information that I just found out is that the county prosecutor was accusing them of making it up oh. and of writing the threatening letters themselves hmm. and of, of firing shots at their own house. Hmm. And it's like... Wow. So those are the kinds of things that where it just sort of blows me away, you know, how little has changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would have been a great thing to have in the book, <laughs> too. <laughs> Why couldn't I have just made that up? Like, part of the frustrating thing about writing about a true story is that I know that I am not capable of making up anything as good as what really happened. Mm -hmm. And that if the whole of their lives were to be revealed to me, it would be so much more astonishing and interesting than what I've come up with. So I always feel like I'm falling short and letting them down uh, because I can't. I'm just not capable of imagining there's How crazy the, it was. Yeah, there's a scene in the beginning of the fourth book where she, like, jumps into the river after yes. this uh, convict who's sort of, or uh, I think he's on the way to the asylum. Yeah. He jumps into the river to try and escape, and she, like, goes in after him, which seems, like, so wild. But she, you know, there's the newspaper clippings in the back of the right. book. Right. Yeah, exactly. She really did it. And she, um, yeah, so she was really fierce that way. And, and, and she caught a lot of um, backlash for that as well. Like, that did not go well for her. She was not praised for her heroism yeah. for having done that the way a male deputy would have been. Um, so for me, probably the most enjoyable element of the series is her voice, which is so memorable and so unique. How do you sort of write in a style that both feels like it's of the historical period, like she feels like she's really rooted in that time, but it also is appealing to contemporary readers. Well, I'm glad you like the voice. I think a lot about that. I really do want this to, I want the books to read as if they were written in the 1910s. And um, of the five that are completely done, one comes out next September, but of the five that are totally done, two of them are in the third person and three of them are in Constance's own voice. But even when it's in the third person, I want it to feel like a book written in the 1910s. So what I do is, first of all, I read almost exclusively novels written in the 1910s. <laughs> people, people always want to know what I'm reading and I'm like, it's this book you've never heard of. It's published <laughs> in 1914. Um, so that helps with the language. I mean, I keep a list of interesting words and phrases and even ways of putting sentences together that strike me. I think, oh, we don't quite say it that way anymore. Mm -hmm. So I keep lists of those things, and I go back to those lists. Um, newspapers help, of course, but also transcripts. So, like, Google has scanned a lot of old out-of-copyright books, including really boring things like just bound transcripts of court testimonies. Well, those things are very cool for me because mm -hmm. those are people speaking extemporaneously and someone's trying to get it down word for word so that those are real speaking patterns as opposed to in a novel or even a quote in a newspaper someone's thinking before they write mm -hmm. a little so I'm always trying to do that and I really do want it to sound like Constance and not like me and some people say that it's the language sounds very plain but the interesting thing about the 1910s is that it was kind of plain like we we're out of the Baroque Victorian language of Dickens we're not yet into the kind of rat-a-tat, noir, slangy thing. We're at this weird moment where modernism's creeping into language. So, yeah, it's, I think about that all the time. Like, that, to me, is the most interesting thing about all of this, is just how to put sentences together and mm -hmm. what words to use. It's interesting that you mentioned court transcripts. We had Geraldine Brooks here oh, a wow. few years ago, and she was talking about writing Caleb's Crossing and how hard, there's so little from women. But one of the things that she used a lot is court transcripts uh -huh. as well. So it's sort of a place where you can sometimes find voices that might be otherwise yeah. hard to track down. Yeah, they're handy that way. Yeah. So you mentioned that you've written a lot of nonfiction as well. Uh -huh. Why novels for these instead of like narrative nonfiction about Constance and her sisters? Well, you know, um, the thing about writing nonfiction is that you learn that the drawback is 
first of all, there's kind of a so what problem with nonfiction. Mm -hmm. So, like, if I were to tell you, oh, I'm writing a biography of one of the early women deputy sheriffs in New Jersey, you Mm -hmm. might sort of go, well, so what? Um, Also, readers tend, in nonfiction, readers tend to really segregate themselves by subject. So they might say, I don't read biographies, or I don't read books on law enforcement, or I don't read sports books. So, you know, I could have an amazing novel about a tennis player, and you would read it because I told you it was an amazing novel. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't go, well, I don't read books of novels about tennis players. Mm -hmm. But as a nonfiction reader, you might stay out of the sports section altogether. Mm -hmm. So that's a big issue. Um, But the other thing, of course, is that I don't know. There's big gaps in the record. There's all this stuff I don't know. And I, having written a lot of nonfiction, I know that what you do is you start using filler. Mm -hmm. You start cramming it full of, like, historical backdrop, and you end up with these long, well... The risk is that you end up with these long kind of Wikipedia-style explanations of just what the town was like and what the... Mm-hmm. And that's not that's not interesting. I really wanted people to love them the way I love them. And I just thought, if I just write this as a biography... I don't know that the I don't know that the emotions will come through in the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think your nonfiction is just as compelling. Could you <laughs> share a few facts from either Wicked Plants or the Drunken Botanist that you discovered on these two topics? Yeah, well, those books were fun to write in their own way. So I wrote. So Wicked Plants is about um, dangerous, deadly, illegal, immoral horrifying plants of all kinds (laughs) and then uh wicked bugs is sort of the same thing but the bug world like the the ones you really don't want to meet in a dark alley and then um and then drunken botanist is about all the plants we turn into alcohol but the thing that those three books have in common is that they're little short pieces about each individual plant so i wasn't having to think about how to carry a narrative across but i did want them to be interesting stories like i wanted to pick interesting odd stories that people maybe hadn't heard and tell those rather than just try to do an encyclopedia-style entry about the plant. So, um, for instance, with Drunken Botanist, I got very deep into agave. Um, Which I learned is more closely related to the asparagus. Which, so the that, right, so that's interesting. <laughs> um, but then the whole story of how that plant got noticed and described in the European botanical literature is also sort of fascinating. Is this French brain surgeon who worked for Napoleon, but he was sort of a botanist on the side, you know, like you do. <laughs> in, a, in a war zone doing brain surgery, you go out and do a little botanizing in the hills on your day off. And so anyway, that's how that agave got described. So it's always like, you know, who is sort of a person or a moment that I can really do this with? With Wicked Plants, it was so much fun because I was going way outside of normal botanical sources and into like medical literature and, you know, stuff like that. So for instance, there's a um, there's a story about a woman who was on a hike and um, in Mexico, like on a school trip or something. And then later that night, a rash started coming up on her back in the shape of a hand. So spooky, right? Yes. Terrifying. And it wasn't just there for the night. It was there for days. She had to go to the doctor. Well, anyway, it turned out that probably her boyfriend or someone had gotten their hands into a, a plant that has a lot of very caustic sap and had just sort of touched her on the back, you know, as they were walking along or something and spread that sap onto her onto her back. But so I love looking for creepy stories like that that, that aren't really thought of as part of the, the established knowledge about that plant. So is your background in science? No, 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 no. Um, no, The uh, my nonfiction books have all been big research projects, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, I sort of got curious about earthworms, and I figured out who the big earthworm scientists are. There's only, like, two of them, so it's not hard <laughs> to find. The field of earthworm science is wide open if anyone's looking for <laughs> a career change. I feel like I know a toddler who could be very interested in that. <laughs> yes, yes. Right. So, yeah, no, I go and I interview people, you know. So you had written exclusively nonfiction before you started with the Cobb Sisters. Well, I, that- I have a couple of unpublished novels in drawers. <laughs> so I, I had been trying, you know. There were, in between some of those nonfiction books, are novels that mm-hmm. no one wanted to publish. <laughs> so you had practiced the, the process of sort of putting together a whole 
yes. overarching plot and right. building characters and all of those things that are unique to writing fiction. Well, yeah, but even my, so my first three nonfiction books, one was a memoir about my garden in Santa Cruz. So I did have to think about a sort of a plot and characters. And then the Earthworm book, and I wrote a book called Flower Confidential, which is about the global flower industry. And those, I did have to figure out like, what is the narrative arc? Mm-hmm. How do I take these real people and make them into characters? How can I use dialogue? Like you sort of have to do all the same things mm-hmm. really. So, yeah. And you've spent a lot of time in the 1910s. If you could go to a different era and be telling stories from it, is there one you'd really like to immerse yourself in next? Wow, a different era. Yeah, I am so interested in the 1910s and... uh, and 1920s and but you know I think the late 1800s would be interesting especially um, in the U.S. but also in England I think that's a fascinating time period a a lot happening all at once in terms of art and um, music and literature I should probably be more imaginative and say something like yes the year 1050 (laughs) in Turkey there was this but I I have no idea I don't know (laughs) So I saw you speak at the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Association conference a couple of years ago, and you mentioned that you have an unusual way of signing the books, the Cops Sisters books. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So I have the signatures of a lot of these people um, because I have uh, real estate documents, marriage licenses, uh, stuff like that. So I took their signatures and I had them put onto rubber stamps. So if you get... If, if I'm doing a book signing, you can get your book signed by a dead person, which is doesn't happen that often. No, I love that. Yeah. It's, like, so fun and interesting. You know, lots of authors have, like, a little phrase that they write or I know. a little thing they draw, but I don't think I've ever seen somebody have signatures of dead people before. So. And their Super handwriting fun. was so beautiful. And also, it brings them to life. It really makes them real people. When you see how someone wrote their name, it, it you, you suddenly get, like, oh, this is a real human being that I'm talking about. I'm Jennifer Egan. I'm a fiction writer and a journalist, and uh, my most recent novel is Manhattan Beach, which is a historical thriller, I guess, if I were going to categorize it. That's how I would. Uh, So that question of category is kind of interesting because you have done a lot of different kinds of things. You've very famously experimented with form and a visit from the Goon Squad, and you have a whole short story that's told through tweets. What made you want to do something a little more traditional, like this historical fiction? That I have to be honest and say that was not my original intent. <laughs> um, my method is really trial and error for everything I do. I'm just trying to find the way to tell whatever story I'm telling as well as I can. And usually that involves doing it wrong a few times and sort of realizing that I need to try something different. So in the case of Manhattan Beach, I actually had all kinds of wild notions about how I would play with structure and time. And I had already done that in a visit from the Goon Squad. I thought, oh, you know, those muscles are nice and strong. Um, But I found I have a writing group that I bring work to at an early phase. And it's very helpful to sometimes just get feedback really about whether some of the major things like the voice are working. Um, And so I brought in the first couple of chapters uh, at a very early point, and I found that they reacted pretty badly whenever my narrator stepped in in a sort of uh, intervening, controlling way, um, whenever I tried to allude to the present or call attention to the fact that it was a historical novel, and we all know that many things have happened since. Um, they, they didn't like it. And then when I did it, when I brought in another piece that still had that, they really didn't like it. And the third time they became angry with me (laughs) (laughs) and I thought, this is really not working. They said, it takes us out of the story. It feels like you're stating the obvious. Obviously we know it's not 1942. Why do you think you need to remind us of that? Like, do you really think we're going to forget? Um, And they felt like the narrator, in a way, had a kind of omniscience that seemed a little bit 
pushy and, and kind of controlling in a way. And that's really where the anger came from, I think. Just this feeling that this was a narrator we didn't want to listen to. Well, that's not good when you're in chapter one of a book. So I realized that actually that sort of ironic playful structural playfulness was really not serving this this immersion in another period at all and so i just left it behind and honestly it was such a relief i realized only then that i was kind of tired of myself doing that actually and it was really nice to just let let all the irony and playfulness go and just tell a story in a really immersive way and remember how to do things like sustain momentum, which you don't have to worry about when you're writing in a fragmentary way. Um, and also just the fun of writing big set pieces like a shipwreck, murders, you know, fragmentation and irony are great and they can do many things, but I'm not sure they're so useful in, in, in those big sort of epic scenarios. So for this book, it just didn't make sense to it. It really needed to be a straightforward telling. And can you tell us a little bit about the setting and the time period and the inspiration, maybe some research that you drew upon to make it such an immersive experience for the reader? Well, those are all, I, I can speak for many minutes on each of those topics. Um, the the basic situation is that it takes place in 1942. Um, a young woman is working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Her She's actually only 19, so it's what we would probably call a teenager, but at that time she would have been considered an adult. Um, her father, uh, who has uh, who was a an Irish-American longshoreman, has disappeared a few years earlier under sort of strange circumstances. It seems to have abandoned his family, as many men did during the Depression. And while she's working at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, she chances to cross the path of a man named Dexter Stiles, whom she immediately recognizes as someone that she met when she was with her father many years before as a little girl and with whom her father seemed to be working. And her father, being a longshoreman, was in a fairly corrupt world. Uh, the, the Irish waterfront was extremely corrupt, actually. Um, and so she she has a sense that, that this man, who is a quote-unquote gangster, he's actually a nightclub owner, had some sort of business dealings with her father, and she befriends him not— not letting him know that they've met before with the hope of finding out where her father might be. Uh, in terms of research, I mean, it, it's hard to know where to start. Um, the whole, the, I guess the inspiration really came while I had a fellowship at the New York Public Library, actually. Um, and I was, I was drawn to the period because I think because of 9-11, um, I was curious about a period when New York was a, you know, New York during a wartime moment because 9-11 in a way imposed a wartime atmosphere on New York for quite a while. And um, and so I started out in the local history room of the New York Public Library just looking at lots of images of New York during the war. And that immediately reminded me of the fact that the port of New York is really the reason New York exists. I had I barely ever thought of that, even though I'd lived there for a long time by then. And so I just began following my own curiosity through the port of New York. And that was really how it, how the research happened. I mean, there were many phases to it, but that was the engine driving it. I'm curious about the research into the diving. So Anna, who's the main character is a diver and the apparatus for diving in the 40s was elaborate. And the scenes for me where she's getting into the diving suit and going underwater are kind of terrifying because it's you can sense sort of the claustrophobia. But for her, they're very freeing. What kind of research did you do both into all of the tools and also what the experience was like? Well, first of all, the di I did not realize that diving was part of ship repair. So I stumbled on that as a possibility really unintentionally. 
um, I started researching the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and I I found an article by a man who had been a civilian diver at the Navy Yard, and. Uh, that led me to do a, more research on that, and I learned that, in fact, there were hundreds of civilian divers in New York for various reasons. And the fact that they were civilian divers was interesting to me because military diving, like everything else in the military, is very carefully cataloged. Um, but civilian diving was relatively undocumented. We really don't know who did that. So that created an opening for me because I was interested in having in. Uh, using a, f- I was interested in, in a woman doing industrial work of some kind, as of course thousands and thousands of women did during the war. So this became interesting to me. And also the diving equipment, as you mentioned, it, it, it's the Mark V, which any anyone would recognize. It's that kind of iconic diving suit, which has the spherical helmet, the big boots, the lead belt. And even though I've never even scuba dived, nor have I ever been really drawn to doing that, for some reason when I saw the picture that accompanied the original article by this guy who had been a civilian diver, I I felt this tremendous excitement at the, at the sight of that diving suit. It was It was strange. And I've learned to pay a lot of attention to that feeling because it often means that I'm I'm looking at a portal of some kind into some realm that I want to work with in fiction. So the the Mark V is not really used anymore, although it was current for most of the 20th century, which is kind of amazing, yeah. until scuba became really common in the 60s. Um, and even uh, it was even used later uh, for training purposes. So it, in a certain way, it, it hasn't... A suit like that has not co- is not completely obsolete, although in the form that I'm writing about, it is. I got involved with a group of Army diving veterans who hold a reunion every other year, and they invited me to attend. And this was 2009, so this was I was still working on a visit from the Goon Squad. It hadn't even come out yet. I went to this reunion, and one of the things that they offer their attendees is the chance to wear that old Mark V and dive in a tank, which is fun for, for especially for people who were trained in that in that suit or dove in it. So I first of all got to watch divers in the suit, which was really interesting in the tank. And one of them actually blew up, meaning that he lost control of his air supply, and the suit filled up with air, and he shot to the top of the tank and there it was like a it was a stressful moment you know everyone ran over and it was all fine they were laughing it was it was no problem but it was it was kind of amazing to witness it and then they of course they asked if I wanted to be dressed in the suit obviously I would not be diving and of course I said yes so I had that experience which was really really a useful one uh, for many reasons um, and then in terms of describing the feeling of diving I I relied heavily on many, many interviews that I did, both at that reunion when I, I must have interviewed at least 15 people, including a World War II diver who dove in the harbor of Cherbourg and passed away just a few months later. Um, I also spent probably the person I talked to the most was the first female army diver, a woman named Andrea Crabtree. She did not dive until the 80s, so that tells you something about how long it took women to break into military diving. In the Navy, where there are more divers, uh, women dove as early as the 70s, but I think it remains a fairly male-dominated area of the military. And um, she was amazing, but partly because she had she her, she had been the most recent diver. She really talked to me um, very in a very sensory way about just the actual feeling of being underwater, of being next to a really long ship, um, of of being a female in in that diving suit. Um, so it, you know, I just I just listened carefully to to lots of different people, and then I just imagined it. And, of course, my diving folks vetted the book and made corrections. In fact, I had experts of every sort doing that because there were so many areas of of technical knowledge, obsolete technical knowledge, that I I really needed that help. So I think when I'm reading historical fiction, what 
differentiates great historical fiction from good historical fiction is when authors are able to not just weave in the facts of the research, but sort of the feeling of the time, especially in the characters' voices, a a sense that those voices are authentic. How do you get in the mindset to write from like a mid-century point of view? It's it's not as easy as I thought it would be, <laughs> like so many things. Um, you know, I thought that that writing about people at a different time would just mean knowing what they wore, you know, what they smoked, what they drank, what kind of cars they drove, and of course, that's that's you can do that on Google in twenty minutes. That's literally nothing. The thing that makes it so challenging is that what we all bring to the present, the moment we're experiencing now, is our past, individually and collectively. The cultural events, all three of us would immediately recognize. The ones that that I might recognize, but not so much you guys, because you're younger than I am. What region we grew up in, what our ethnicities are, and our family stories, like if you don't know that stuff, if you don't know what the past of the past is, you're just you're just writing with nothing underneath you. So I often felt as if I was trying to build a bridge and walk across it at the same time. I felt like there was just nothing under me, um, nothing under the people I was writing about. It took, I mean, really, my characters are, are thinking back, some of them, the older ones, to the Gilded Age. So we're, now we're in the 19th century. I, I was not counting on that. So the answer, I mean, luckily, I have years of, of work as a journalist under my belt, and that helped me enormously. And with journalism, it's always a combination of talking to people and also doing archival research. And I, I found that the same approach really worked with this, but it took a really, really long time. So it was a combination of reading everything I could get my hands on. Interestingly, contemporary fiction was was among the most helpful resources. It didn't matter if it was good or bad, and I read lots of crappy uh, detective novels set in New York, but the details of, of daily life, the cultural assumptions and cultural references that would come through were really, really helpful. Expressions. Um, I read a lot of correspondence. And again, what I what I was always listening for and also taking copious notes on were, were expressions I would hear more than once, let's say. Things that see details that would that would come across in from various different sources those were the ones that i knew really would would have resonated and that's exactly the same thing as i do as a journalist i'm always looking for the fact or the detail that becomes relevant not just from one point of view but from many different subjects um so it was and, and so it took a long time to feel like it was second nature to me to write with the kind of cultural knowledge and context that a character of various different ages would have had at that time, and and ethnicities, because I'm writing about Irish Americans, um, Italian Americans, um, quote unquote Negroes, which is what African American people were called then, um, and it, it's it was a lot of different a lot of different contexts to try to understand thoroughly. And if someone did want to get to know the 1930s and 1940s, are there any fiction books that you would suggest? Gosh, I mean, uh, let's see. Well, certainly for the noir, which is a genre I use pretty heavily in this book, I would, you know, Raymond Chandler is is really fantastic, um, even though his books are taking place on the West Coast, so it's not New York. But there, there's a lot there in terms of jargon, um, a sense of sort of law enforcement and, and crime structures, um, which I found really, really helpful. Um, I never really understand the plots of his books, but it's not really <laughs> about that. Um, there's a female writer, Marita Wolf, whose books are actually now back in print. Um, and I found her book, her novels really helpful. She was, they don't take place in New York, but they're on, I think it's like Pittsburgh. Very sexually frank. Um, and, and really, you know, quite, uh, quite daring in, in their way. And, and just again, great on just the little textures. Night Shift is the one I found incredibly helpful. 
um, the little textures of daily life. Um, there's a book called The Lost Weekend by Charles Jackson, which is probably the best book I've ever read about addiction. It's about a guy trying not to drink and then going on a bender, and it's it's absolute agony. Um, there were a lot of nonfiction. Oh, actually, um, The Man with the Golden Arm is a fantastic... That takes place in Chicago, but again, fantastic details. Um Gosh, let's see. Uh, a couple of books by African-American women that were incredibly helpful. One is called Passing by Nella Larson, which is amazing and takes place in New York. So especially fantastic for me. And another one uh, by Anne Petrie called The Street, which takes place in Harlem during World War II. It's about a single mother. Also just fantastic. I mean, my goal was to try to imbibe as many points of view and personal histories as I could because pretty much always in my books, people of various ethnicities and socioeconomic levels intersect because that's that's the kind of life I'm interested in and also the kind of life I've chosen. It's why I love being in New York. Um, I love just all the, 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 the collision of all different kinds of people. That's what's interesting to me. So that means I have to know an extra lot. <laughs> So as you were doing all of that reading and research, was there anything particular that you learned about the lives of women that really stuck with you, that surprised you from sort of your own understanding of what women's history was like? Well, I think, I mean, it was such a fascinating period for women. Um, I mean, they, as we all know, women had opportunities uh, in fact, were, were pretty much begged to do work during World War II that they had been told all their lives they couldn't do. And one thing that was, and so I, I knew that narrative in a kind of general way, but it was really amazing to actually interview women who were in this position. And I interviewed a lot of them because luckily I was starting this research in the first decade of the 21st century. And so I actually got involved in an oral history project where I collaborated with the Brooklyn Historical Society and the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And the Brooklyn Historical Society has a whole oral history program, and they have really good recording equipment. And we interviewed many, many people, I think almost every one of whom had passed away by the time the book came out. So we were catching, you know, this, this period is disappearing from living memory. This is really sort of like we're getting toward the last time when we can really hear these stories with clarity from the people who... Um, experienced them. So there were, you know, I guess it was fascinating to me to hear firsthand stories about how these women, like, for example, there was a woman named Ida Pollock whom I interviewed, and she was a welder, and she was an excellent welder. And she actually achieved a fair amount of seniority at the Navy Yard. Ultimately, she was very slender and, and slight, which was a huge advantage in working on ships because they're very close, crowded spaces. And um, anyway, the women were all fired from the Brooklyn Navy Yard even before the war ended because the whole point was the men were coming back and why on earth would a woman have the job when the man wanted the job? And so Ida was a working class woman and had already been working before the war and she thought, I'm not going back to the phone company, I'm going to weld. And so she tried to apply for a number of welding jobs and she was not just denied that chance, but actually laughed at. I mean, she was treated with contempt for hoping that she could do a job that she had just been doing at a very high level and to great praise. So the, the whiplash of that, hearing that firsthand was really shocking to me, even though I kind of already knew it. It's just the difference between knowing something generally and hearing, hearing about it specifically. Um, and so that, that really stayed with me. And she, she said to me, you know, I would, I would, I would walk over the bridges. I would look at that welding. It was done terribly. (laughs) (laughs) She was still mad. Um, so I think that was one thing. And then I, it was also interesting to me, you know, the sexual mores governing women, women's behavior at that time were very strict. I mean, you were supposed to be a virgin when you got married or you were a bad girl. Um, you know, it, you having a child out of wedlock was 
absolutely not an option. I mean, you had to either give it up for adoption. I mean, and I, oh, I wrote a cover story for the New York Times um, about single mothers by choice, which is a hugely growing trend in our country and, and a very exciting one. The idea that, you know, if you want to have a child, there are all kinds of ways that you can do that. You don't have to have a partner, male or female. Um, and so the idea that that was absolutely not allowed at that time, that your child would have been branded a bastard, and you know, you would have been occupied a, a sort of purgatory um, in, in society. I guess I, I hadn't fully understood all that. And the thing that's really surprising about it is that women's sexual lives were actually much more complicated than that. So it's not that no one was having sex. It was that it, you weren't allowed to. And therefore, this tremendous secrecy and and subterfuge were required to try to remain, quote unquote, respectable in, in a world where there were, you know, there it was also a much more paternalistic world in which women, you know, likely uh, were, were subject to a fair amount of sexual abuse and innuendo and all the rest of it. So it was a really hard position for women to be in. And I think that that was, you know, it was it was interesting to be reminded of that, and I think it also taught me that you know that that it was it was even harder than I would have realized for women at that time. So you've mentioned a couple of times you started the research for this book a long time ago. How long did it take you to write it, and what was that process like? Well, I was doing the first. I I was researching for about five years while working on other books, and I was part of the reason was that I was a lot of that research consisted of interviewing elderly people, and you you can't really wait with that. Um, so from two thousand five to two thousand ten, roughly, when I could, I would do research for this. I would I would jump in on an oral history interview, or I, w- I went to the Virginia for the reunion and to wear the diving suit. But it was pretty um, impressionistic research. There was nothing very systematic about it. And part of the reason for that was I never know what my books will be about until I start writing them. So all I was really doing was trying to just give myself some kind of context. And also, I guess I did absorb a fair amount of detail. Just, just, I I was just giving myself enough to even get started. Um, I didn't really start writing until 2012. And once I started writing, then I began to know more clearly what I needed to know. You know, once a plot began to form, which I, which for me is very spontaneous and rather improvisational, thing in my first drafts. But even so, as I, as I began to sense, you know, who my main characters were and roughly what some of the action might consist of, I, I did, you know, more intricate research effective immediately. I mean, I was researching like a maniac the entire time using, and I mean, libraries were essential all the way through. I, I, I don't know what I would have done without them, including like the San Francisco Maritime Library, which has all kinds of out of print diving books that really don't, I, that I wasn't even able to view in physical form. But they, I, I after a, a visit there, they were able to send me PDFs. They also have a lot of artifacts of diving. So I actually, I, I touched and held World War II diving suits. I was able to really put my hands on air compressors. Um, so there, there were just amazing uh, experiences that I had with with libraries and librarians all the way through. I, I'm not sure I could have done this without them. Um, starting from the very beginning, starting with the waterfront and just guiding me through what aspects of the New York waterfront really mattered during the war and why. Um, and then that that really led me into so many different realms. The, the Irish-American waterfront, which is the waterfront we know from the movie On the Waterfront, um, because that movie was drawn from nonfiction newspaper exposés of the corruption on the Irish waterfront. Um, and then the Brooklyn Navy Yard, shipbuilding, all of the different kinds of, of lives that converged there. So I it, there was a lot of... Uh, intensive library research, even while I was writing the book. And in fact, especially because then I really started to know what I needed to know. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah. 
My name is uh, Ken Jennings. If you're old enough to remember, I was on Jeopardy 75 times in 2004. Um, since then, I've become a writer. I have uh, 12 books out, which like makes me sound very prolific. But I've actually been padding the stats with like kids books. I have a series. <laughs> totally count. I have a series of junior genius books for kids with amazing facts about dinosaurs and whatnot. I also wrote uh, Brainiac, a book about my um, Jeopardy experience and American quiz culture in general. Maphead is about um, geography nerds of all stripes. I have a book called Because I Said So um, that kind of debunks parenting myths like, you know, don't go swimming after you eat or don't sit too close to the TV, which of those things are real. And uh, a trivia almanac with uh, almost 9,000 trivia questions. And I just finished Planet Funny. Um, which is a look at uh, our comedy-saturated modern culture. Twice a week, I do a podcast called Omnibus with uh, local Seattle musician slash raconteur, man about town, John Roderick from The Long Winters, where we're creating one entry at a time of a luminous time capsule of our current culture for a possible post-human society should <laughs> civilization collapse and really, you know, our cockroach successors want to understand Millie Vanilli. <laughs> the most important thing to understand. When I imagine, you know, the aliens landing in the year 3000, <laughs> like they're going to poke through the rubble and they're going to be like, what's the deal with the best new artist Grammy of 1989? <laughs> <laughs> so that makes me wonder if NASA was to call you up and be like, okay, the Golden Voyager album is a little outdated at this point. We need to update it. What would be on your human mixtape? The Golden Voyager record is super outdated. Um, it was a lot. So at the time, you know, Carl Sagan with his turtlenecks, he thought the hip thing to put on would be a ton of jazz. So it's, it's really almost all classical. There's like so much Bach on the, on the Golden Voyager record. But they put in a few j jazz tracks at the end to update it. And I think, um, like Johnny B. Goder, like there's, there's one Chuck Berry track and that's where history ends for the aliens. So, you know, if we want to make sure they hear, you know, Nine Inch Nails or, or something, um, or the Jerky Boys prank calls, we're going to have to get on that. Um, what would I put on the record? I don't know. Um, you know, when you make a mixtape or something, you want to know them, you mm -hmm. want to be like, oh, she's going to dig this Bell and Sebastian or whatever, you know. <laughs> and I don't know the aliens. <laughs> like, it's really hard to say. Like, are the aliens right. going to want Fugazi or are they going to want uh, a Bell and Sebastian, for example? Like, uh, hard to say. I guess you, uh, you'd you have to mix it up. How do you choose topics for the omnibus? Um, so John and I alternate entries in the omnibus he'll he'll do a show where he explains something to me and then i'll do one where i explain something to him and uh you know we wanted this we like this format i mean the the thing about the the aliens or the robots or whatever is just a conceit that lets us pretty much talk about whatever we want and not feel like um you know we're gonna run out of stuff or uh you know this really isn't super omnibus if we if we talk about the children's crusade of the 12th century or about the Rachel haircut of the 19th. Like, we really wanted to make sure, like, it's a box big enough for anything to fit in. And that's, I guess, what a time capsule is. Um, generally, it's something that I read a sentence about once and thought, I would like to read about this for an hour. Um, there should be some element of a story to it. Like, today I'm going to go over to John's and record this afternoon. And um, Jean Calmont was recently in the news. She was like a 122-year-old woman who died in the south of France in the late 90s. She had hung out with Van Gogh and recorded a rap album because she had lived so long. <laughs> exactly. But there had recently been a story where uh, the Russians are trying to discredit her and say that at some point she was replaced by her daughter to um, to dodge like inheritance taxes. <laughs> That's creative. So suddenly, you know, just a, a, a kind of a fun footnote in history, a 122-year-old woman who said, you know, I never shower, I just wear olive oil or whatever her health care is <laughs> Like, uh, suddenly there's a story now, like, why are the Russians trying to submarine yeah. uh, the, the claims of this dead French woman? So um, something where I want to know more. One of your recent episodes was about overdue library books. Could you tell us a little bit of the fun facts you gleaned while researching that? <laughs> I've always been a fan of that genre of, like, I grew up in the age of print journalism. And so there's, like, certain genres of stories that I love. 
And uh, I have always loved the, um, you know, library book from the Civil War, turns out. And because it's always got, it's always the exact same story. And the librarian always has some kind of deadpan like, the fines would be $28,117. <laughs> but we've decided to wait. Like, Thank goodness they decided to weigh them. Like, that's a lot of money. They um, probably don't want that book back anyway. It's like, what kind of shape is it in? Does there's no way it's going back it in circulation. No. And the one thing we found during the episode is that the titles are hilarious. You know, it'll be um, these kind of impossibly florid gothic novels about uh, a vicar's daughter who, uh, you know, goes to Italy and gets corrupted or something. Or they'll just be super boring, you know, the ethnobiology of uh, fungi or, you know, it'll be stuff <laughs> like that. None of this stuff is going back into circulation, right? Um my favorite example you cited was something to the effect of a happy marriage. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and, the yeah, there was a book called, it was some kind of marital tips book. And when the inevitable news story was written, they interviewed the guy whose uncle or dad or whatever it was had uh, left this book in the attic for 50 years. And they were like, how was your parents' marriage? And he was like, well, they got divorced like <laughs> six years later. So I don't want to put down libraries, but not all the books are 100% effective, it turns out. And your mom was a librarian, right? Yes, she was an elementary school librarian until just a couple years ago when she retired. And she was the world's most devoted elementary school librarian. Like, I don't want to put down thousands of other elementary school librarians. I'm sure they're great. But she just went bananas. She was one of these people who spent every waking hour, like shopping for her library or thinking what was going to go up on the bulletin board next, or here's the new like contest for the kids. Or, um, she was always enlisting me to like draw stuff for the walls of her library. So I think there might still be a public school in Utah that has like a, um, a kind of a Tolkien looking dragon drawn by me, like the length of one wall. Ken Jennings original. Yeah. But I think it's totally unsigned. uh, (laughs) At some point, maybe the Russians will will come after it and try to prove that it's not legit. (laughs) Working with kids in libraries, I find that maybe somewhere around like 8 to 11, there's often a period where they get obsessed with a certain moment in history, whether it's like ancient Egyptians or Greco-Roman mythology or shipwrecks or DK books about medieval times. Did you have like a history phase that was memorable? I've noticed that as well, just as a as a dad, if nothing else. Like uh, of my kids' books, there's definitely one about mummies and there's definitely one about Greek myths and there's one about presidents because kids do fixate on these, on these things. Um, I guess I was mostly a president's kid. I'm too young for to be like a old west kid and I'm too old to be a pirates kid. <laughs> but I was always fascinated by the You're presidents. From the presidential generation. <laughs> yeah, like the exactly the Reagan era. Like of uh you know, look, there's this uh kind of sunny optimistic guy in the White House and we were kids, so we weren't troubled by the AIDS epidemic. Or I guess we were troubled by like the Cold War and the day after, but um uh so I guess it was an appealing time to be like, look, he he likes jelly beans. I wonder what other pre- what other snacks other presidents liked. And then you could read about, um, you know, Calvin Coolidge used to slather Vaseline on his bald head. Or uh, there are some truly awful presidential snacks, but I can't remember. Uh, I feel like you know, one of the Bushes liked pork rinds, and I think the other one might have liked plain mayonnaise sandwiches. Oh, I don't know. So it really is kind of a like celebs that are just like us moment. Like when you when you read about how like Teddy Roosevelt's kid had a hyena and they used to slide down the White House front stairway on a baking sheet. Like it's, like you could kind of picture like, what if I was president? Think think how fun this is. Seems so. Among your many projects is something called Connections, which is a feature on Mental Floss, where you ask five trivia questions that are all then somehow related, and people have to answer the questions and then come up with the theme. What intrigues you about unexpected connections in history? Uh, a lot of the podcast stuff we do actually is based on this idea of... Uh, of weird connections, you know, that if, if so, like, that's what I really love. If something odd happens in the middle of a story, mm-hmm. you know, like suddenly Davy Crockett or, and then they went to see the Pope or, and that guy turned out to be Alfred Hitchcock or, you know, <laughs> like, I love that kind of thing. And, um, why is that? I mean, it's definitely a, a kind of world is smaller than we think kind of a thing. And which is especially true in history. You know, there's, Plenty of times in history where there were like 50 famous people. Yeah. So, of course, they were all hanging out, you know. Um, but also maybe there's some element of, uh, you know, maybe there's some element of like, oh, it could happen to you. You know, it's it's, it's wish fulfillment, you know. Yeah, like, it's sort of like that 
presidents are just like us. Like, it's a similar sort of, like, history is not as uh, rarefied. So loving presidential biographies is like a total dad move, but do you have any that you really love? So I should be very clear that I have not yet turned into one of these guys on an airplane with like a 800-page biography of a founding father. You. <laughs> <laughs> like I almost entirely read fiction, which I think is not what, very on brand for me. But um, like I've read few enough of them that I can just recommend the only ones I liked, I guess. I mean, I read the... David McCulloch, John Adams one back in the day, and that's very good. Um, I don't know. Like, I like uh, I like pretend presidents a lot, actually. I like It Can't Happen Here by um, Sinclair Lewis, which is about a kind of a blowhard um, business type who somehow gets elected president on some kind of populist platform and turns out to be a fascist. What kinds of fiction do you like? I guess the I guess if I had to pick like some book that's like right down the plate for me, it would be something that had a lot of trappings of any some kind of genre fiction, like it's it's um it's structured like a mystery or it has some kind of um fantastic or science fictional element, but it's not actually some kind of dodgy looking small mass market paperback. Like it's <laughs> like it's classy in some way, you know, like you know, South American magic realists. You know, it's perfect. You're reading a fantasy novel, but you actually get to feel good about yourself because <laughs> um, it's smart and the guy might have a Nobel Prize. Do you have any specific examples? Um, sure. I mean, like, I love uh, South American magical realism. <laughs> like, like, classy. That was not hypothetical. Like, I love... Um, I don't know the hits. Like I like Borges, I like Garcia Marquez, I like sure. um, I like Hopscotch by Julio Cortázar, which uh, is maybe the gimmickiest um, literary novel ever written. You can either read the chapters in the order in which they are presented in the book, or there's a second choose your own adventure order. And I like Calvino a lot. Um, if on a winter's night a traveler has a similar gimmick, well, not similar, but a, a kind of a gimmick right in the same family where each chapter is the first chapter of a different genre of novel, mm -hmm. um, but it still kind of makes an overarching narrative. So I do like books that play games, but you know, but I'll also, I'll read, I'll read whatever. Um, I just finished the new Murakami book. I guess that's kind of on brand for what I just said, but like there's a new Ian McEwan book coming out in a month. I'm very excited. I do like plenty of more straightforward stories, you know, any kind of kind of well-mannered British thing that will soon turn into a movie that might have like Bill Nye in it or Emma Thompson, but then it will disappear from your theater in a week. Like, I probably read that book and I probably liked it. Has Because I Said So been translated into other languages and is the rest of the world laughing at us for our conventional parental wisdom? MatPad has been published into probably the most languages. I guess geographic geekery is pretty universal. Because I said so, um, it seems a lot of it seems very, uh, I don't know, American or English speaking specific, like do all countries have the five second rule or like do, do parents like nag their kids about the same things? I think it's very culturally specific. Like I know in a lot of Europe, um, one of the big parental warnings is don't never sit on anything cold or you'll get hemorrhoids. So you'll, you'll see moms being like, get up from the fountain, you'll get hemorrhoids. <laughs> but for weirdly, that book was translated in Spain and it's called like Manual para los Quisquiosos, like um, Manual for the Fastidious. So um, that's a great title. I know. I, <laughs> I, I like it. I learned how to say overscrupulous or, or whatever in uh, <laughs> persnickety, I guess, in, in Spanish, which is quisquioso. Any final thoughts about history? <laughs> <laughs> For me, <Yeah. laughs> well, the premise of the show is that um, you know there will be no history that we, you know that we're all doomed. But I don't actually believe that. That's just fun for the kids. <laughs> How long do you think will last? Do we have another hundred years? <laughs> I guess the last time I talked to her, I'm not a real futurist. I just was on a game show, but like I was sitting next to a futurist at a dinner a few months ago, and I was talking to him about this, and his take was that um, we've done fine. That humanity has passed the bottleneck, whatever it is. There's huh. now so many of us, and we uh, have advanced in so many diverse ways that we are sure to be able to survive in some form whatever awful things 
are coming, some of which we appear to have created for ourselves. So his view is essentially a sunny one, which is that um, we are inevitably going to um, survive, and in his view, um, thrive. Like he thought, you know, interstellar travel and um, cleaner energy and all this was just inevitable based Hmm. on how well we've done in the past. And, you know, we now have a, there's now billions of us all working on these problems and, you know, certainly the oceans will rise and maybe the meteor will strike and maybe the bombs will go off and the nanotech and the germ warfare will, all this might happen on the same Thursday, but, but we're going to be okay because there's, I mean, not individually, but (laughs) (laughs) as a species. Yeah. yeah, In this room, we might all die, but uh, as a, as a population, we're going to, we're going to, get through it. Um, so you mentioned you're not a futurist. You are a game show contestant. There's some recent news that maybe Alex is having some health problems. If you were called in, would you want to host the show? Uh, I can't imagine Jeopardy without Alex, just because obviously you know, he's been doing it every weeknight for 35 years. Um, you know, He is the format now. And just that voice and that demeanor, you know, I can't imagine anybody else doing it. But obviously, you know, even before his health prognosis, his health, his cancer diagnosis, you know, they knew he's not going to live forever. Um, and that's a great job. You know, that, that's, uh, I think Alex probably works four or five days a month because they, they shoot five in a day. They do back to back to back to back to back. And, um, you know, he looks smart. He has all the answers in front of him. Not mm-hmm. like, the, not like us, the contestants, like we're working hard up there. Um, it's no, I'm, I'm joking. It is a tough job. You know, he, he makes a very hard job look very easy. Um, but it is kind of a dream job. I wouldn't turn it down. That said, I have almost no chance of, of getting that job because everybody in entertainment wants that job. It's a, it's a dream job. And, uh, I'm sure they will hire some very skilled broadcaster to do it. Or Watson. (laughs) Yeah. Or an evil computer from the future. (laughs) Well, that sounds like a fun note to leave us on. Thanks so much for being with us. I was uh, happy to do it. Thanks for inviting me, you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening. You can find all the books mentioned in today's episodes in our show notes. The Desk Set is hosted by librarians Britta Barrett and Emily Calkins, produced by Britta Barrett and brought to you by the King County Library System. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts.